For most, living in a home, especially if you're the owner, is a constant battle with nature, a never-ending war with the elements. This isn't limited to home maintenance and repair, like pressure-washing sidewalks or repainting those old wooden colonial shutters, but the continual attack and defense against the creeping encroachment of nature. When the tangled mess of vines leached against the vinyl siding is torn free, then the hedges need clipped. There is no rest, no reprieve. You need to have resolve, stamina. The fight will never end. The foe will never fall. If the perpetual growth of nature is the whale, the home is Jonah. But this isn't limited to greenery. If the flora is the infantry, the front lines, the fauna rides in like the cavalry to really put the pressure on. Here are a few examples of the many different ways insect and rodents have tried to destroy my wife. In her words, Wasps made a nest right by our bedroom window. There's a family of mice living under the couch on the porch. Ants everywhere. My feet. Help. I thought it was a black garden hose, but no, it's a snake. I found a bird's nest in the laundry room. One of them swooped me. Cockroach, cockroach, cockroach. No, no, no. There's a big spider living on the handle of our garbage can. Black widows are the ones with the red hourglass, right? I didn't know caterpillars could bite you. I spent the first 30 years of my life on the West Coast, and while insects and rodents, of course, existed, their force and number paled in comparison to the southern states. My lady, bless her, is from outside Milwaukee, and Wisconsin is basically Canada, so it's too cold for bugs. For us, life in the South has been eye-opening. Nothing could have prepared us for the deluge of creepers and crawlers. In the beginning, it felt apocalyptic. There's a reason why the Egyptians weren't plagued by swarms of bunny rabbits or labradoodles. We've gotten used to it now, after a few years in Louisiana, Florida, and now Georgia, but it's taken some time to adapt. No matter the sprays or bug bombs, no matter how clean the house is, or how tight the doors and windows are sealed, they will find a way in. Over time, you learn to live with it, and them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we cuddle up with cockroaches on the couch every night, but killing them all would be like trying to murder the ocean's tide. Now, if possible, we just take them outside. We are trying to live harmoniously with a part of Mother Nature that, without malice, is trying to reclaim our house, and if given the chance, us. But what if that drive isn't just instinct? What if the flora and fauna is actively trying to kill you? What if the intentions of cockroaches or snakes really are sinister? That's downright terrifying, isn't it? We're used to insects and rodents living their own lives, sometimes invading ours in the process. But the fear remains dormant, because deep down, we know they will only bite or attack if they're feeling threatened. What if, rather than self-preservation, nature came after you for fun? Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 3. 
Jones sat in a faded plastic Adirondack chair near the edge of the pool, with an unlit menthol cigarillo in one hand and a mug of coffee in the other. She was watching Kate as her daughter-in-law circled the pool with a long-handled skimmer. Music played through one of Denny's many voice-activated speakers bolted to the house's brick wall. Clearing all that junk from the surface is good, Joan said, but it's the leaves and everything at the bottom. That's your problem. It'll stay green until you get that out of there. There isn't anything on the bottom. We've vacuumed a dozen times. Kate pulled out the skimmer and wiped her cheek on a shirt sleeve. The white bandana tied around her head was already soaked through. Her curly blonde hair, piled on top, had taken on a darker, stringy look. Not even nine in the morning, and the temperature was already boiling. The dogs had come down to the pool area and were milling around by the shed. Soon, Roxy, the bigger of the two, splayed out like a sphinx and took in the morning sun. Her eyes fluttered and closed. Echo sniffed around the corners of the fence before joining her sister in the sun. Though they nipped at the occasional fly, both were in full-on nap mode. I bet you missed some down there, Joan said. Look at all these trees around the pool. They're always shedding. Just do a couple of deep scoops for me. I can't. Why? It'll help. Trust me. My arms aren't long enough to reach, Kate said, the heat and maternal pressure testing her patience. She was shoeless and already sunburnt down her legs. Now wasn't the time. Well, here, let me. Joan made to stand up. Mom, you're doing it again. Joan put her hands up in mock surrender. Okay, 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 I was just saying. Can we at least change the music? Kate changed direction, going counterclockwise around the concrete rim. I thought you liked Elton John. Denny told me you saw him in concert once. I did. Fell asleep about three songs in. How is that possible? He's incredible. He's a hideous little leprechaun man. Kate couldn't help but laugh. The woman was a character. They'd spent a good amount of time together since she'd met Denny, but in the weeks since they'd driven in from Florida, they always seemed to be in the same space. After bouts of convincing, Joan had helped Kate rearrange the kitchen drawers, thinned out her and Denny's closet, cleaned out the attic, waxed the floors, and stationed half a dozen boxes and open totes full of unused items in the carport for a future yard sale. Sometimes Kate got irritated, like when Joan started talking about her conspiracy theories about lizard people and illicit gun and drug running through online clothing stores. But more often than not, it felt good to have Mom in the house. Safer. Kate had kept the master bathroom door rolled shut ever since Echo's little freakout, and the dog hadn't acted the same since. Having Joan around was helping to convince Kate that the whole thing was the delusion of a tired woman in the throes of half-sleep. The rest of her sightings, her feelings, were still there, though. She'd have to unpack all of it next time she had a video session with Jeanette, her counselor. She'd wait until then to worry about it. Not that Denny wasn't a comfort, but he'd been helping Barry with either errands for their new house or with various projects down in the basement. That morning, while the ladies were by the pool, Denny and his father had left to rent another U-Haul, which they then drove to the nearby Fort Gordon to pick up a new refrigerator. The fridge was next in a long line of appliances that were in perfect functioning order when they bought the house, but had since started acting up or quit altogether. The dishwasher, stove, water heater, one after another. Even the washing machine they bought needed to be replaced shortly after it was delivered. Just quit working. Credit lines were maxed. Using Barry's veteran ID to get on base meant a cheaper fridge and no sales tax. 
Echo gave a loud bark from behind the shed. Kate looked up to see both had left their usual spots. The grass was still indented from the bony points of their legs. The dogs were out of view then, their barks vicious and increasing in intensity. Normally, they were lovers, not fighters. The last and only time Kate had heard them in this sort of frenzy was when she caught them cornering a nutria back in Florida. The thing had been hissing and pawing at them when the girls advanced, then retreated. Eventually, Denny was able to pull the dogs back, grabbing collars and tugging hard. The intruder then played dead. Denny let him be, and in the morning, the nutria was gone. Their frenetic barking was worse this time, feverish, manic. Joan got out of her lounge chair and was walking the length of the pool, but Kate was closer. When she came around the back of the shed, she saw both dogs on the other side, teeth bared, throats already seeming to be raw from roaring and growling. The back of the shed was about two feet from a rusted chain-link fence, three feet high, which was then covered by a six-foot wooden slat fence. In this space, bordered between the shed and fencing on two sides, two barking dogs and Kate on the others, was a cornered black snake. Sleek scales glistened in the sun and in the center of its coiled form, as if they had been dropped into a weaved basket, was a pair of mice. The dogs had interrupted lunch. At first, Kate's mind wanted to assure her that this was just an old garden hose, thrown behind the sheds with piles of cracked bricks and paving stones. But when its upturned head turned her way, a slow hiss seeping out around its flicking tongue, Kate felt a bolt of panic plunge into her stomach. She took two steps back, and then the snake, maybe seeing Kate's retreat as weakness, lunged at her, fangs glistening. The attack came up short, six or so inches from the toes of her left foot. This advance made the girls close in on the other side. The snake flipped around and shot out at them, but both dogs slunk back, barely missing the fangs. At the same time, Joan had appeared on the other side, grabbing at their collars and yanking them away from the scene. Kate scrambled back, not taking her eyes off the snake until she'd gotten back in front of the shed. Joan and the dogs were already out of the pool area, running up the steps to the house, and Kate followed, listening to the snake's continual hiss, and slammed the gate closed behind her. There was a sharp knock on the front door, but since they rarely used that entrance, Kate needed to move a few of her in-laws' boxes out of the way to answer. It was one in the afternoon. The dogs were cooped up in the master bedroom, locked off from the rest of the house. They had a habit of jumping all over visitors, whether they found them to be friend or foe. Waiting on the other side was a tall, uniformed man. Sweat stains ringed his collar and left crescent shapes in his armpits. He was balding, with dozens of beads threatening to tumble down his face and into his bushy beard. Strange men were always off-putting to Kate, but he had a soft face, kind, and he held his ID out for her to take. Kate Coleman? Taking the card and inspecting it briefly, Kate smiled and handed it back. That's me. Thanks so much for coming so quickly. Not a problem. That's my job. I'm Griff. We appreciate it, Griff, Kate said, feeling awkward that she just parroted the man's name back to him. Now, where did you see that racer? After their quick escape from the pool area, Kate and her mother-in-law had spent a half hour looking at pictures of snakes, specifically those common to northeast Georgia. Not talking to each other, really, but rather staring at their phones while scrolling through informational pages and muttering short phrases like, fanged, non-venomous, constrictor. 
They agreed that what they saw was an eastern racer, a fast mover that wouldn't hesitate to lash out and bite if it felt threatened. While not poisonous, one article detailed how these particular snakes could lay up to 36 eggs in early summer. Images of an overgrown pool area teeming with Mama Slither and her offspring, their silky bodies coiling around the dog's legs, made both Joan and Kate shudder. Kate was the one who made the call to animal control. Down by the pool, behind our shed, Kate said. The man took out a pen and scribbled onto the clipboard he'd been holding. And about how big would you say it was? From behind her, Joan had appeared in the hallway. She said, had to be at least three or four feet. More scribbling. Then, as if just noting the afternoon heat bullying its way into the house, Kate was about to invite Griff, the animal control officer, in when Joan beat her to it. Kate, don't make the man sweat out there in the front yard all afternoon. Sorry, yes, come in. A grateful smile at the man's face, and he stepped by Kate into the entryway. Can I get you something to drink? Kate asked. Some water would be great. Kate left Joan with the man and went into the kitchen. The overhead light was off, so she flipped the switch. Nothing. She tried to tap the bulb, but it was just out of reach. Feeling beside the fridge for a step stool, a wild thought came to her, and she yanked her hand back. What if the snake had made the trek under the house, came in through the pipes, and was waiting in the dark to take some of her fingers as a prize? Admonishing herself with a little shake of the head, Kate retrieved the stool, reached up and felt the bulb had come unscrewed, but was still hot to the touch. Using a rag from the counter, she tightened it. The light sputtered, then lit up the room. From the entryway, the voices of Joan and Griff went back and forth, her mother-in-law giving him more details than were probably needed. She grabbed a pint glass and stuck it into the fridge's dispenser. There was a click, but no water flowed. Stupid, Kate thought. Where do you think your husband is right now? She filled the glass from the kitchen sink's tap. There were probably ice cubes left in the freezer, but that meant letting the residual cold out. If Denny didn't come home with a new one, they might run the risk of losing a couple hundred dollars worth of food. Skipping the ice cubes, Kate went back to the entryway. Joan was at the door while Griff had already gone back outside. He was standing a few feet from the door and was inching his way back, around the sidewalk that led to the driveway in his county truck parked there. No need to go that way, Joan was saying. Griff waved her off with his clipboard and said, No trouble, I'll just meet you at the back gate. What about your water? Griff was hurrying up the driveway slope. Over his shoulder, he said, Thanks anyway, I got, I got some in the truck. Kate closed the door, thankful to have the sun off of her legs again. What was that all about? I don't know, after he walked out, he started coughing. All the color went out of him like he was about to throw up. What did you say to him? Kate asked sounding more accusatory than she had meant. Nothing. Just a little bit more about the snake. Joan was following Kate through the house, where she set the water glass down on the fireplace hearth and headed for the porch. He's probably a drug addict. Government jobs are great cover-ups. Or maybe he's just got heat stroke. Do you feel it out here? Hell itself, Joan said. The two women walked around to the rear gate, opening it. Griff had donned goggles and an N95 mask. He held a long pole in one hand that resembled a trident and had a burlap sack in the other. The image made Kate nearly giggle. She had to fight it. I can take you down there, Kate said. No, no need. Just down the slope and around the south side of the house, right? Yes, but it's no prop. No, the man said, his voice rough, biting, as if he were scolding a child in the back seat. Then it softened some. 
Sorry, I, I just appreciate it if you stay back here. Don't want you getting bit, either of you. They pay me the big bucks to get into harm's way. The three stood motionless for a time. Then when Joan and Kate began backing away, Griff slinked between them as if he were giving the woman a wide berth, as if they were the vicious animals he needed to come and take care of. He gave them a last look, then made his way through the backyard. Kate and Joan rushed back into the house and down the hallway. Each took a window overlooking the pool and shed, one in the master bedroom, the other in the library. The girls ran out of the bedroom and into the front of the house. They were sniffing around the entryway and barking, feeding off of one another. The animal control agent was making his way around the pool, his head tracking back and forth, stopping for a time to peer into the murky green of the water. Then he was out of sight, into the space behind the shed. Kate could see the shaking of weeds and the stalks of vines that had laced into the weave of chain-link fence, and could just barely make out the sound of repetitive clanking, as if the man were banging his trident against the fence. I can't see him anymore, Kate yelled out. Can you? Nope, Joan replied. I think the view is worse from this room. There was a glimpse of the man's boot on the far side of the shed, then the pole pumping in and out. Kate said, I think he found it. Where? Joan asked, but when Kate heard footsteps coming into the room, she waited for Joan to see her for herself. Feeling Joan behind her, Kate shifted over a bit to provide more space. Instead, she could feel hot breath on her neck, a slight wheeze and rattle from lungs that had been taking in smoke during most of their existence. The breath was sour, bitter, and it made Kate's stomach lurch. She wanted to turn around, move away, but she seemed to be locked into the pumping motion of the battle behind the shed. The breathing increased, a steady puff, 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 as did the smell. Joan was probably feeling the same excitement about the conflict outside, but this was getting to be too much. They were close, but really, how do you tell your mother-in-law to back the fuck off because her mouth smells like a rotting tire fire? Still, the breath was wet, sticky on the nape of her neck, and Kate thought Joan was about to bite her. Then Joan spoke. There he is. I see him. Kate wasn't sure if she meant Griff or the snake, but it didn't matter. Her voice was far off, too far to be right behind Kate. And as she realized this, the hot breath snapped away, the warm, wet patch on her neck turning frigid, icy. The sensation began spreading down her body like winter water. At the same time, Kate noticed something else. The dogs had stopped barking. She could hear nothing in the house. It was as if the whole home had been plunged underwater. Outside, Griff wasn't exactly running from the shed, but almost skipping. Hearing the gate open and close through the filter of the window pane seemed to snap her paralysis. She turned, sure that she'd see something, maybe Ghost Denny, or the thick blackness of the bathroom molded into a humanoid shape reaching for her. But no one stood behind her. Instead, just outside the master bedroom door in the hallway, Roxy and Echo were sitting next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, like a furry version of the Grady twins. They weren't panting or wagging, weren't even blinking. They weren't moving at all, just staring at Kate. No, not at her, right in front of her, as if they could see something she couldn't. Joan came out of the library and pushed between the dogs. He's coming back up. This seemed to break the dog's trance, and they trotted down the hallway after her, nails clicking and scraping. Suddenly feeling colder and more alone than she could stand, Kate jogged after them. 
They were barking again, through the screen door, at the shapes of Joan and Griff in the carport. When she got outside, the sun felt as if it were soaking into her skin. Like she'd just fallen to the surface of a frozen lake, and was now wrapped in one of those shock blankets and placed next to a fireplace. Warming up seemed like the only relevant action now, but when Kate noticed Griff had already gotten back in his truck, she clicked into the middle of the conversation. I have no idea, Griff said, then slammed his door. He rolled down the window halfway and told Joan, that was not a native Georgian species. Hell, I don't even think it's legal in the States. Joan said, do you think someone in the neighborhood bought it illegally? Like on the black market? And it got out somehow? Possible. Either way, just steer clear. Don't approach it. Keep your dogs out of the pool area, okay? Finding her voice again, Kate asked, Is it poisonous? If it's what I think it is, yes. Very. But I've never seen one in person. Through the window, he held out a business card. When Joan pinched the edge, the man snatched his hand back, as if she were the snake about to bite him. Well, what do we do? Jane asked. The snake is probably long gone by now, having run-ins with you and now me. But if for some reason he comes back, call us. That's it? Kate asked, realizing her arms were tucked across her chest hard enough to stifle her breathing. She forced herself to let her hands fall to her sides. She wiggled her fingers, waking them up again. There's nothing else I can do. The animal went under the fence into the next yard. Go into their yard, Joan said, her voice taking on a demanding tone. Don't have permission. They haven't called us. What about probable cause? Joan asked. I'm not the police, ma'am. I'm sorry, I've got to go. Call us if the snake comes back. He sounded as if he wanted nothing less than to get another phone call from either woman. Before they could say anything else, Griff rolled up his window and was backing out of the drive, his exhaust coughing out choppy plumes of blue smoke. Kate raised a hand and waved, then felt silly and let her arm fall back down. Did he tell you what sort of snake he thought it was? Joan asked. No, did he tell you? Joan shook her head. Why didn't you think to ask? You didn't either, Kate said, not bothering to soften her own tone. As soon as the animal control truck vanished from one end of the street, a beat-up U-Haul was chugging up from the other. Denny was driving, and he slowly backed the vehicle into the driveway. He'd sweat through his polo shirt. The tattoos on his arms were slick and red from the sun. Well, that was just about the worst damn retail experience I ever had. So we pull into the loading area and... Wait, what's wrong? Who's that? We have snakes, Joan said. Of course we do, Denny said, as if this sort of house problem, all their problems with the house, were completely normal. In a way, they were. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Ghost Modernist. This is a re-recorded version of the third chapter of The House Unsettling. When I first recorded that season, I knew nothing about sound quality or studio setup. I definitely still don't, but I think it does sound a little bit better. So here I am, trying to make these episodes sound... listenable. If you're enjoying the show... Please follow on whatever platform you're using and rate and review The Ghost Modernist on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps and gets more folks listening. The theme song was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, 
Remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?